1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people
0: today.
3: An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Dr. Benjamin L. Carp. Professor Karp is the author of several books, including Defiance of the Patriots, The Boston Tea Party, and The Making of America. He has also written for Colonial Williamsburg, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. He teaches at the Graduate Center and is a Daniel M. Lyons Professor of History at Brooklyn College. Let's hear what he has to say about the Boston Tea Party. Professor Karp, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, thank you for inviting me.
3: So before we dive into talking about the actual event of the Boston Tea Party, I'd love for you to set the stage for us. So it's the mid-18th century in the American colonies. Tea? is everyone's drink of choice? Question mark?
2: Tea is your drink of choice. If you want to look refined, they're drinking, they're drinking it uh, in Indian settlements, they're drinking it in frontier posts. Um, You know, it is an aspirational drink for people who want to look middle class.
3: So when does the British government start to tax the colonists on tea? And uh, what other imports were being taxed?
2: Sure this starts in 1767 with the revenue act right this was the next attempt to try and tax the colonies to help pay for debts accrued by the seven years war um and yeah like you know tea paper glass lead paint right we're all taxed uh, uh, but tea was really the one that was supposed to be the big revenue maker now the colonists complain about this and uh, 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 within a few years all of the taxes are repealed except the tax on tea is kept in place uh, and the colonists respond to this by being like, "Fine, we just won't drink any British tea. We'll smuggle it from other European countries, uh, which is what uh, they do for for a few years.
3: How does that go? and And how is that related to um I guess give us some background on the East India Company um and and then how the uh, colonists start smuggling tea.
2: Sure. The the British East India Company was uh, had a monopoly on all trade legal British trade of any goods east of the case, Cape of Good Hope. So uh, Indonesia, India, China, they technically had a monopoly on it all. However, other European countries also had their own East India companies who also brought tea from China. Uh, and so you could bring that stuff to Europe and then an enterprising smuggler could smuggle it from continental Europe into Britain or they could bring it to the Caribbean and an enterprising American smuggler could bring it up to British American colonists there. It was all illegal, but it was definitely done. British people drank smuggled tea, American people drank smuggled tea. Uh, And so this was the issue. Now, the British government is trying, wants to get revenue from valuable commodities like tea. And so they're trying all sorts of things. Well, what if we made this commodity cheaper? Then people wouldn't mind paying the duty so much. And that's actually what they end up doing with the Tea Act of 1773. They say, hey, the British India Company has more tea than it needs. What if we remove some of the duties for it to bring tea to the American colonies? It'll be cheaper. Now, the Americans would still have to pay the tax from 6- 1767. It gets a little complicated, sorry. And, no, uh, this is other... what I
3: need you to explain. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. And then the other issue is that... Um, the East India Company could pick particular merchants in each of the major cities who would sort of have an advantage in selling tea. So what this would do is cut a lot of American and British middlemen out of the market. So it's sort of propping up a monopoly company. It already had a monopoly in the East Indies. Now it's got a monopoly, not really quite a monopoly, but effectively it's gonna get a monopoly on the American trade. And so this is what the Americans are really nervous about. They already didn't like the tax that was in place. And they also don't like the fact that if the British can establish one monopoly to sell goods in the American colonies, they could start saddling the Americans with all sorts of other monopolies. And then all of a sudden, it's like your cable company. You're you know, you're know, paying excessive prices because the British government has decided that this one company is the only game in town. So it's the tax and the monopoly that's really starting to disturb Americans uh, under the Tea Act of 1773, even though it was designed to make tea cheaper for them.
3: And who is Lord North? And I mean, how would how are his actions short sighted, I guess?
2: Lord North was the prime minister uh, in uh, back in England for much of this period, Uh, and he has a number of problems that he's trying to solve. One is that the American colonies really ought to be paying a little more to the British Treasury in exchange for British protection um, and the debts that the British had incurred fighting a war on the Americans behalf. So that's one of his problems. He also has some problems with the East India Company, which is not very well governed and is also in need of reform. So North is part of an energetic group over in Britain that's really trying to centralize and reform the empire. Um, Some historians think he was doing it in an obnoxious way. Other historians think, yeah, you know, he kind of had the right idea. He's trying to make this empire actually like pay rather than just be, you know, inefficiently run and cutting side deals with everybody here and there.
3: Could you tell us more about the Sons of Liberty then back in the colonies? Uh, What are they fighting for over there?
2: Sure. The Sons of Liberty had started out as a very specific organization to protest the Stamp Act of 1765. Uh, it may have started out as a group of guys in a tavern in New York City who then traveled to a few eastern Connecticut towns and then Boston. And then sooner or later, you've got a Sons of Liberty chapter uh, in a lot of different major towns on the eastern seaboard. But eventually it becomes sort of a catch-all term, the Liberty Boys or the Sons of Liberty, um, uh, for people who initially just wanted to find some way to resist the acts of parliament that they found obnoxious. Uh, maybe that might just mean sending petitions, you know, uh, begging the governor to ask for these things to be repealed, um, you know, but but it also might mean more serious measures. Let's have a boycott. Let's coordinate, you know, among the colonies uh, in terms of these protests. Let's even maybe, uh, you know, sponsor some violent protests in the streets, right? Like, obviously, they try and keep their hands clean, but it's like, it's a mix of strategies used by the wealthy, the middle class uh, and working class folks in the streets to try and say, like, we really don't like these laws and we're going to assert ourselves in every way possible um, to try and uh, a- and get these laws off our back. Eventually, as you know, the, the, the British and the Americans realize they just have fundamentally different ideas about the way the colonies are supposed to be governed. Uh, this is going to lead to armed resistance and war.
3: Uh, were they respected? Uh, how, how were they perceived, at least amongst the co- other colonists?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's the Sons of Liberty again could be a catch-all term, right? Like if you wanted if you also didn't like whatever law it was, you might join too. I mean, a lot of the people who didn't like the Stamp Act of 1765 eventually become loyalists, you know, like because they they didn't you know, a lot of loyalists didn't like Parliament's laws either. They just weren't willing to like give up the king for it. You know what I mean? Um so interestingly, right? Like as soon as Sons of Liberty becomes this sort of like broad scheme, it's not like a sort of you're in the group or you're out of the group. You know what I mean? So the easier way to think about it is like Americans had a range of opinions about the best way to deal with these obnoxious laws. Some of them were like, yeah, you know what? It's worth it to be in the British Empire, and we'll just go along, go along to get along. Uh, others were really outraged and trying to figure out a way out of it. So, you know, Americans disagreed with one another, which is something a lot of people forget. They think that all Americans were standing strong together, but you know, I mean, Americans can never agree on anything on everything.
3: <laughs> um, I'm curious, who who were some of the most prominent uh, leaders in the Sons of Liberty?
2: Sure. I mean, if we're talking about Boston, the names tend to be pretty well known, right? Samuel Adams. Uh, there are others who I talk about in the book who are not as well known. William Molyneux, right, was a, a street leader. Uh, you know, there are others that uh, people should know. Joseph Warren, right? I mean, there. Um, you know, and then in, in other colonies, right, you might have Alexander McDougall and John Lamb in New York. You might have Timothy Matlack in Philadelphia. Uh, you could t- talk about Christopher Gadsden in, uh, in South Carolina. We tend to think of these as leaders of the movement to resist the the acts of parliament and the the way these dynamics worked was different in every colony um but it it, it was the eastern seaboard cities that were tended to be the seats of government in every colony and so they were big merchant towns and you would have particular guys who kind of just rose to the fore of speaking out against the acts of parliament
3: how coordinated were they
2: They corresponded with one another, for sure. And then they ratify that in 1774 with the First Continental Congress and establishing the Committees of Correspondence. Um, You know, Samuel Adams at first thinks of the Committees of Correspondence as sort of a a, a local Massachusetts thing, a way for Boston to be in coordination with the various towns all over Massachusetts. But uh, but they also have this intercolonial network of newspapers that reprint each other's items. They're writing to one another and kind of egging each other on to be like, stand strong on this boycott, right? (laughs) Like if you back down, then the whole plan is ruined because if New York starts accepting imported goods, there's really no point in Boston continuing the boycott. So actually like when the boycotts collapsed in 1770, like the colonies were kind of mad at each other for a little while. And that actually ends up affecting the way the Boston Tea Party goes down a few years later.
3: So let's talk about that uh, Boston Tea Party. It's December 1773. What happens that kind of sets off the Sons of Liberty? When they find out that there are some shipments of tea on their way to the colonies and and what is their plan?
2: Yeah, well, first they get the news of the the, of the Tea Act and then they find out who the handpicked consignees, right, who are going to receive this consignment of TR. And they get really annoyed because two of them are the sons of of Governor Thomas Hutchinson, who they hated. Um, One was Richard Clark and family, and uh, his wife was the sister of Hutchinson's wife. So it kind of looks like this very close-knit family affair. It's a bunch of people who had really not been big, you know, who had not been cooperative with the Sons of Liberty. So that's the second thing that annoys them. So even before the ships arrive, they start putting pressure on these consignees. They say, "Hey, you need to resign this commission, or we're going to make your life really ugly." Um, you know, and then the ships themselves arrive, and they're like all right, well, the Consonese aren't listening to us. What if we start pressuring the ship captains and say, hey, could you just take this cargo of tea and turn around and go back to London? Um, they say, no, that's illegal. And if I do that, the Navy's going to seize my ship and I'm going to lose a bunch of money. Um, I really don't want to do that. So, uh, But in New York and Boston, actually, the captains do agree to do that. They say, wow, it is really hot and ugly here. They really hate the Tea Act here in New York and Philadelphia. We're just going to go and turn those ships around. In Charleston, they come up with a different compromise. They kind of store the tea away and lock it up in a warehouse. So it's like the the Americans really do not want this tea to be sold on shore. That is the issue. But in Boston, the the governor stands strong. He's like, I am not going to give you special permission to turn these three ships that have tea around. I'm I'm just not going to let you do that. And when, when the Bostonians get news about this, it's, it's December 16th, and there have been a series of meetings and hand about this. Um, and when, you get, when, when the Bostonians who are gathered in the Old South Meeting House get this news on December 16th, they say, well, look, we, we now really don't have any choice. We absolutely um, do not want the tea to land. Because that will be giving into the principle that we have to pay taxes on it. And also, our friends in New York and Philadelphia are going to, you know, think that we're suckers, you know, for having uh, for having done this. Um, But we're also not being allowed to just peacefully send the tea on its way. So they're like, our only option left is to dump it in the in the harbor. Um, And so And so that's what they do. Clearly, they had been planning for this ahead of time because all of a sudden a bunch of guys show up disguised as Native Americans um, and somebody yells, Boston Harbor, a tea party tonight. And they all go from march from the Old South Meeting House down to Griffin's Wharf. um, And they they spend a few hours carefully unloading these chests from below decks. They chop them open with axes. They dump the tea over the sides. And they're very careful not to damage or touch anything else. They try their best to act with restraint
3: we read they even uh, they must have broken a lock for uh, one of the captain's locks and they returned it. Well, they
2: replaced it. Yeah. They're <laughs> yeah. like, oh, yes, we're sorry about your lock. Right. Like our only objection is to the T. We're not trying to damage your ship. We're not trying to damage anything on it. I mean, they're not totally nonviolent. There's a guy named Charles Conner who starts pocketing tea for himself. And they're like, oh no, we're not doing that. And they like, they 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 rip his coat off and they beat him up. And um, and then they like nail his coat to uh, like a, a post like near his house and say like, this guy like, you know, was a punk. You know, I mean, it, it's like, they are actually a little bit violent, but they're trying to send the message, right? Like, we're not just a bunch of yahoos. We actually have a political point to make.
3: Now, oh. Why did they dress as these Mohawk warriors? I mean, I feel like this part of the event is left out of all of our books or or at least in the teachings in high school when you learn about the Boston Tea Party.
2: Well, I mean, it's a fraught thing, right? It's the equivalent of blackface, right? So it's not a, it's not necessarily something we want to talk about with the children, right? There've been so many controversies of you really shouldn't be dressing as Pocahontas for Halloween, right? So, you know, again, right? But there is this, you know, uh, Phil Deloria, a, a professor at, a, at Harvard who's of, of Native descent, right? Wrote this great book, Playing Indian, that talks about the kind of tradition of uh, white people adopting Native American a- a- a identities. But he starts with the Boston Tea Party and it's really interesting. They were not actually, Actually, trying to disguise themselves as Indians and have people be fooled by this disguise, right? Like, mm. no one actually thought that a bunch of Mohawks had walked 300 miles to dump this tea into the ocean. But the disguise is still supposed to send a couple of signals. One signal is just, all right, you may know who we are. I mean, there are only 16,000 people in Boston. Maybe a quarter of them were adult men. And so like, you knew how your cousin walked or how your neighbor carried himself. (laughs) Like probably everybody knew who these guys were, but the disguises are meant to send a message like, you better not tell who we are, right? Like this is meant to be an expression of the whole town. It's not meant to be something that individuals should get prosecuted for, right? So they're being very careful, right? So that's one function of the disguise is to send the message like, this is a community event. We are, you know, we are sort of acting on your behalf, and don't be a snitch, right? That's that's one thing, function that I think those disguises serve. But that still doesn't answer the question: Why Indians? And I think it's really a sort of mix of wanting to adopt the bravery and wildness and freedom seeking of Native Americans, while also kind of reassuring people like. We're still white underneath. We still are acting in what we consider to be civilized ways, according to our own standards, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a weird mix of kind of admiration for what Native American people symbolized while also being condescending toward actual Native Americans by asserting like, yeah, but we're still the whites who are taking over this continent and see our civilization eventually eclipsing theirs so it's like it's hard to kind of get into the psychology of 18th century people sometimes but like i really think that the boston Tea party is really supposed to send this complicated message like we are not native americans right we are the settler colonists right but that also means that we are starting to no longer think of ourselves as british right in in cartoons and such the native a native american woman often represented like the whole continent of america right in political cartoons you would see you know uh, the american colonies represented you know, by a Native American. And so Americans, white Americans themselves kind of take this on and say, yeah, all right, like, this is what makes our experience different from our cousins who stayed in the British Isles.
3: Interesting. It's almost uh, what a metaphor for how complicated America continues to be.
2: Yeah, well, how complicated it is as far as race, you know, and how complicated it is to even figure out what American identity is about, right? It's not like, oh, I live in France and my ancestors have been in France for a thousand years. I'm ethnically French, da-da-da-da. Although, obviously, mm-hmm. in France, that's complicated, too, because, of course, yeah. they have <laughs> emigrants from sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, et cetera. Um,
3: it's complicated everywhere. So yeah. <laughs> how, how did the British react to the news of the destruction of the tea?
2: Oh, man. The British are super, super annoyed at this news. Um, It results in Benjamin Franklin, who was over there serving as an agent for the colonies, being called out on the carpet. Um, He's fired from his position as deputy postmaster because he for for a few different reasons. But the outrage over the Tea Party was definitely like affecting the mood over there. Um, You know, the, the tea was not owned by the British government. It was owned by the East India Company, right? So it was privately held, nevertheless, like the British understood it as a political protest. And what they begin doing in the early months of 1774 is passing a series of laws to punish Boston and Massachusetts specifically. Uh, The Boston Port Act says, we are going to close the port of Boston to all traffic, except for stuff for the troops, basically, and and what you need to feed yourself, essentially, which will throw everyone in Boston out of work. Until Boston... Pays for the tea. And the Bostonians say, we didn't do it. It was a bunch of Indians. Right. Like this was, again, like part of the disguise. Right. Like you can't hold the whole town responsible. It was these random miscreants. Right. Who um, who did it. Right. So this was one thing that they do. And so they they think that this is going to isolate Boston and single it out as the sort of bad seed. But what actually a lot of the other colonies do is begin like sending shipments of rice and other provisions and being like, we think the Bostonians are great. We're going to help them in their hour of need. And, you know, this this is one of the ingredients that begins um, really ramping up the coordination among the colonists in in the middle and late part of 1774.
3: So the, the Bostonians, they took the brunt uh, because, you know, they literally threw the tea overboard. But yeah. New York and Philly, they get away with this one?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, right, like... Yes, basically they, they do. I mean, the, the event, the incident in New York doesn't happen until a little bit later because the ship had been blown off course and spends a little oh. while in Antigua. And so, and New York actually later has a, a mini tea party. Um, and there are other mini tea parties elsewhere in the colonies. So the truth is, like, Britain isn't really happy with, any of its colonies but most of the laws that are passed in 1774 really se- seem to single out Boston and Massachusetts in some way because based on all the news that they've gotten over in Britain they really think that Boston and Massachusetts are, are are a unique problem they're wrong about that as they as they find to their um to their dismay um you know you know all through the war you know the the all through the war, the British had thought like, oh, we've got loyalist allies everywhere else, just not New England. Uh, but it turns out that there was enough of a patriot faction in the Middle Colonies and in the South that uh, that they they all send delegates to the Continental Congress. They all have troops who serve in the Continental Army and they're all able to stand strong against the British Army uh, in these various theaters of war.
3: Now, I feel like we're taught that the Re- Revolutionary War is is. In my mind, it happened right after the Boston Tea Party, but that is not accurate, right?
2: Right. It takes some time. I mean, you you have to keep in mind, right, it takes four to six weeks for news to even travel back and forth between (laughs) London and Boston, right? So everything kind of happens in slow-mo, right, compared to what we would be used to of like, I'm going to make a phone call and say what just happened. (laughs) Um, So yeah, things, things happen slowly, right? Like Parliament reacts by passing this series of laws. You know, the laws don't come into effect until like May and June of 1774. The colonies then have to get their act together. The First Continental Congress meets in September. Um, you know, there's a bunch of kind of tense moments over the fall and winter. And then Lexington and Concord starts in April of 1775. You know, part of it is not a lot happens during winter anyway. Right. But like, yeah, it takes a little while to get from the Boston Tea Party to the actual outbreak of of, of war because there's this back and forth. How's Britain going to react? OK, how are the Americans going to react to that? OK, uh, is King George going to you know, declare the colonies to be out of his power. Once he does, the colonies are like, all right, that's it. We're effectively independent now. And, and again, right. Like then the declaration of independence happens and the year, the war has been going on for over a year at that point. Right. So it's like, yeah, tea party, then the continental Congress, then the outbreak of war and then independence. Right. And even then, you know, none of it is a sure thing as far as what the outcome is going to be.
3: So, At the end of the day, we always ask our guest experts this question. If you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the Boston Tea Party. Who or what would that be?
2: Oh, gosh, I haven't thought about this in a long time. (laughs) I think. I think the concept that I would blame is that the British Empire had just gotten too big after the Seven Years' War and, you know, uh, uh, like every, every Spider-Man reader knows, right, with great power comes great responsibility. And the, and the British Empire had just gotten too big. The East India Company had gotten too big to fail and needs to be bailed out by the British government, right? Like there were all these ways in which the British were just overextended and couldn't Manage all of these people that it had in the various parts of its empire, and the Americans sort of take advantage of that and said, "What if we had free trade, right? What if we were able to expand across the continent the way we want, right?" And they they seize on this opportunity basically and uh, and make a bid for independence.
3: Professor Carp, thank you so much for joining us and helping us understand this very uh, popular, important event that. Should be revisited every now and then, I think. I agree. Thank you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers
1: at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
3: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. I've said this before, and (laughs) it won't be the last time I say this, but God, I would love to be a student in one of Professor Carps's Car- classes, sure, just so yeah. much enthusiasm. Yeah, you know,
1: he made and, it. He drew you in with his excitement about it. And you're like, yeah, he, I want to listen.
3: Yeah, it was juicy. It had like, uh, you know, it it was complicated, controversial. You know, just juicy. I I know
1: I feel like it's easy to think like oh history it's like so boring it's in the past who cares you know there it was like different times now we have technology and we're cool but like what exciting times
3: yeah and when
1: everyone was so like involved in what was literally going on in their colony like it's like the baby beginning of it all
3: yes and and it's such a uh, common uh, thing we learn in history the Boston Tea Party it's like one of the big ones right Mm -hmm. but Professor Karp kind of, like, gave it just this angle that maybe we hadn't learned yet or Mm. this enthusiasm to, like, relearn it. I don't Mm. know. So fun. Love talking to him.
0: Super fun. And um, I also thought it was so interesting when you guys were talking about the disguises and how they weren't meant to actually... I mean, technically, they hid the identity, but it was more of, like, a wink-wink. Like, everyone kind of knows who's doing this, but also... You know, don't tell anybody right. exactly who it is. It's not about the individual. This is about an act, right? Uh,
1: solidarity. We're of all the in the this together.
0: Solidarity. Yeah, exactly. And just sort of borrowing the spirit of the uh, the native people, Um and almost
3: right. It was way more complicated than just like one one or the other.
0: Right. Identifying right? yeah. yeah. with sort of their their sense of freedom and their sense of sort of wildness. He said. Mm-hmm. Um. I thought it was fascinating.
1: It was an interesting time to be alive too in American history where it really is kind of like an identity, not crisis necessarily, but like big question. Like we're not Mm -hmm. natives, but we don't feel British anymore. Like, so who are we? Like, how do we establish ourselves? It's like, what is the new order, you know? Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's a pivotal point. I mean, it's like the, the teenage years, right?
1: Mm, a little awkward. Yeah. A little ugly. <laughs>
3: you're 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 gonna make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> you're like trying to figure out which group you belong to, what your interests are, <laughs> how you're gonna yeah. dress, where do you want to go to college? You yeah, know, I it's, like that. It's a moment of a period of change. Something he said that um he was like, Well, it's hard to get into the psychology of an 18th century you know, American, American. Yeah. And right. I'm like, but God, don't, don't you want to, don't we want to, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be so interesting? I-, I, sure... watch...
1: <laughs> what? I watch I these videos on YouTube. I don't know how it got recommended to me, but it's like 18th century cooking. And it's just like a person in like a hut with like an open fire cooking, like over like boiling, you know, just like old school, <laughs> like making a meal. I'm like something about that sounds looks so exhilarating to me because you're like how are they going to do it like you can't just (laughs) put it in (laughs) the oven they're like shoveling hot coal on top of a cast iron stove i'm like wow that does sound exhilarating does it yeah Uh, i mean in like a way that like we're not used to it but that was just like the norm back then you know like don't question it
3: well but and then how does that change your personality right like how does that affect right Uh, Just even the cooking, just having to cook (laughs) like that.
1: (laughs) Take time. Everything took more time. As you said, like the the correspondence between Boston and New York was like four to six weeks. Like imagine that.
0: No. And also, I think a huge factor works a little off track here, but just talking about personality, (laughs) like the fact that you kind of. No, like everybody who's in your world when you're a child Mm. are going to be the same people that are in your world when you're like old and dead and you're not going to basically interact with anybody else right right that to me is probably has a huge effect on your like honor starts to mean more right integrity yes your good name
1: yes that's true john proctor let me have my name
0: yes (laughs) yeah exactly
3: (laughs) um I think you're right. It's a small town, right? It's yeah. it's weird to think of of Boston as being a small town, mm-hmm. where everybody knows everybody and don't tell on me. And, uh, yeah, uh, it's it's one of those things where like word travels slow, but then gossip travels. Yeah, fast. once it yeah once it gets to town, <laughs> sure. everyone's like, "What is
0: the news?" <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people are also so. It's just fascinating how everyone's involved in or sort of has to be involved in the politics of what's going yeah. on. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I know that's um, so, so different. Right? Yeah, it's it's a so good point. different than today. Yeah, it seems to be like, um, you know, there's a there's a sort of bit. You feel so removed from these mm-hmm. headlines mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. news. And yeah, this but you, yeah, you, you kind of feel like you have the option too. I guess. I mean, like
1: yeah. uh, people are constantly urging people to participate in democracy but when it's like so big and amorphous it feels like it's easy to just kind of like t- tune out uh-huh but like what else i don't know maybe this is my assumption but
3: what else were then, they doing yeah what else are you doing
1: <laughs> but just like it, trying to survive and kind of figure out what you're doing in this new land you know yeah
3: and and your survival is so connected to the laws of the land and you know And and to uh, uh, Parliament, you know, people who are like so far away, who you feel like you're not understood. America is such a a a grumpy teenager. (laughs) I can't. I keep thinking about like. Oh, so angsty, you know? Super angsty. <laughs> mom and dad
1: over in Europe just like telling you yeah. what to do. And you're God, like, God, you wanna. don't
3: understand. You don't yeah. even understand. You don't even
0: know what's going on. <laughs> I don't drink tea <laughs> anymore, mom. <laughs> I don't even drink tea anymore, mom. <laughs> God.
3: So, okay. So, what did we end up sending to the alarmist jail? Clayton, can you remind us?
1: We threw Britain in jail and we gave the big slap to taxation without representation.
3: Okay, yeah. But I feel like we definitely discussed the idea that things were, that Britain just was too big. Yes. Right? Didn't absolutely. we?
0: Absolutely. I'm looking at
1: it. Too big for the
3: their own now. good.
0: hmm. You know? Too many. The thing is, when you're a massive empire like that, you just have too many logistics.
3: Yes. And we did discuss. <laughs> Logistics. We did, logistics. yeah. <laughs> think about we how hard it about
0: was about for monopolies you guys logistics, when you
1: used to... just like too much going on. They had too mm-hmm. much. They ha- we talked about all the different um, uh, territories uh-huh. that they owned at the time. We were trying to right. figure out exactly how many there was, but it's like it's and they're all over the globe. It's like trying to manage all that. It's pretty
3: yeah. When you, th- I mean, when you think about it, um, America, it's at the time just didn't have. A lot, you know, they could just focus on this one thing, getting right. their um, independence, <laughs> you know. So it's yeah. The, at, versus Britain, didn't have the luxury to just focus on the war, you know, with America. They had to run different colonies, and they they were a bit spread thin. So we definitely interesting. used it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how he uh, kind of pointed that out too. That like the colonists really took advantage of that. At
3: the yeah. Time. Right. Yeah. So,
1: so what do you think
3: carp said, you know, it it was getting too big, right?
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Too big to fail. Overextended.
3: I, th- I think I think we keep well, I think we keep Britain in the alarmist jail and yeah. we slap too big to fail, just like Oh, or, or too well, big for their own good?
0: Yeah, there's a difference. There spread was a, too thin? I think he was saying that the East India Company was too big to fail. Too big to fail, a, sure. And that's why the British had to bail them out and basically take a piece of them. They were sort of, right. they were in that business. They were partial owners of that. So
3: it's more spread too thin. That's, yeah. that's the idea,
0: I think,
1: with yeah.
3: regards
0: to Britain, yeah.
3: So do we slap being spread too thin as a, I mean, it's just not good for anyone to be spread too thin.
1: No, it's not a good thing. I think you could slap it. I don't think it needs to, I I agree that Britain should remain in jail for this
3: one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh we have a lot of to our listeners uh in the uk we love you <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you, you know we can't control these verdicts we come uh, you know we come up with yeah it's right? history, but it's uh, uh, okay,
0: we're just yes. we, we let it we let it go yeah but, you know their eye the british the eyes were too big for the stomach oh. they couldn't they mm-hmm. they got the you know they were in charge for a while but it wasn't it didn't end up being um manageable yeah
3: for them okay i'm going to call it being spread too thin you're getting the big slap ah <laughs> uh. Sometimes I love I love the things we slap and send to the alarmist jail. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a good reminder to everyone, though. Like I don't think spread so. Too thin. It doesn't. It doesn't end well.
3: It doesn't end well. It, yeah, it, and if you are being spread too thin, I think you got to make some changes, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah be careful what you wish
0: for too you know what i mean
3: Mm -hmm. (laughs) sure (laughs) that too
0: you just might get it and then (laughs) you got to really think through what that would actually be like that's right might be tough
3: well thank you to professor carp and uh stay tuned because next week we are going to be discussing john gluck and the santa claus association